1: Amidst all the talk of a green revolution, what about the blue stuff? There are the seas that will wash over inhabited land. There's the sea economy and fishermen and cargo crews facing hard times. And then there's all the debate about animal rights. Where do sea creatures fit into that? Professor Chris Armstrong is the author of A Blue New Deal and he joins me now. Welcome.
0: Thank you. Thanks very much. It's great to be on.
1: And let's just uh, understand the sort of scope of this book because you're 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 discussing lots of aspects of ocean policy basically
0: yes i am it's quite a wide-ranging book from you know as you say the rights of animals to the rights of workers at sea the environment inequality in the ocean economy it's all in there
1: yeah and and let's just start by understanding obviously oceans are important uh, but in what ways are they important and one of the striking things you say which i mean some people may be aware of but many won't be i suspect that yeah, they're probably more important than the rainforests in terms of absorbing carbon.
0: Yes. I So there's some disagreement among scientists about the exact figures about whether the ocean is the biggest carbon sink, but it's it's there or thereabouts. It's also the biggest supplier of oxygen, if you like, which, again, we used to think was the role that the rainforest provided. We go to school and we get told that the rainforests are the, the the lungs of the earth. But now we are increasingly thinking that the ocean is. That's largely because of Plankton, which absorbs carbon dioxide, uses up the carbon, stores it away into the ocean food system and then releases the oxygen.
1: I'm surprised there's uncertainty about that. I mean, these things must be quite easy to measure or, or maybe not.
0: You would think so. <laughs> I think I think our um, our understanding of the exact proportions are, are a bit uncertain at the moment. Whether whether the rainforest or the plankton are in the number one position or the number two position, I think there's, there's some debate.
1: Basically, the sea is more important than most people realise.
0: Absolutely, absolutely, uh, and it—you know—it it does many other things that we blithely ignore in our day-to-day lives. Like it, it regulates temperature, it drives weather patterns that we rely upon.
1: Tell us about regulating temperatures. What is the role of the ocean in that?
0: Essentially, the idea is that water has a very high heat capacity, and by that we just mean that you can throw lots and lots of of heat into the ocean without it actually increasing its temperature very much. So, you know, lots of solar energy comes from the sun, hits our planet. If our planet was a kind of dusty, rocky planet, it would become very, very hot. But the, the ocean manages to absorb that energy, much of it, and, and disperse it rapidly. So these, these great ocean currents take heat energy away from the equator towards the poles, which is why, for example, the UK is much warmer than uh, it would otherwise be, given that we're on roughly the same kind of latitude as Canada. The uh, the Gulf Stream transports heat energy from the equator up towards northern Europe. So the ocean is a kind of uh, a conveyor belt of heat, if
1: you like. And it's a moderating influence, in fact.
0: Yes. So the, the equator would probably be uninhabitable if it wasn't for the ocean taking away so much heat energy, Northern and, and very southern latitudes would be even colder than they are. So it's a, it's a kind of equalising influence.
1: Uh, an, an obvious sort of importance of, of oceans, they, they, they provide a lot of food. Yes, they do. Uh,
0: hundreds of millions of people are, in one way or another, nutritionally dependent on the sea. The big story is obviously the fact that many, you know, many people eat fish, but also the ocean is really important for some people in providing salt or um, you know seaweed or various other um, inputs into their diet.
1: Now then let's look at the uh, problems and you you talked us through some of the important functions of of oceans as far as humans are concerned on the problems I mean I guess the one that people talk about most is sea rise so how real is that I mean it seems to me that as as it may be the case in a lot of these claims about environmental degradation that the dire predictions haven't yeah, happened as quickly as people say. What, what do you think?
0: There is a, a good deal of uncertainty when it comes to exactly how much sea level rise we can expect. And that's partly because there are kind of time lag effects. You know, even if we manage to decarbonize our economies right now, there is probably some sea level rise already locked in by our, our past emissions. But exactly how much sea level rise we're going to have is, is very much open for debate, because it partly depends on what we do. There are some some dire predictions where we see sea level rise in the in the meters by the end of the century, which would be which would be pretty catastrophic for many countries in Asia, but also North America and Europe, and really lots of places. Sea level rise itself hasn't led to the loss of much territory, but there are problems around sea level rise that accompany it that are quite serious. So. So we often think with sea level rise about land literally kind of crumbling away into the ocean. But we also have to think about salt, for example, being um, absorbed into the land as, you know, waves rise and rise and penetrate more of the soil. And if you are a farmer, you're not really going to grow crops on soil which has been salinated. So that's a kind of worrying aspect around sea level rise that I think gets a bit less attention.
1: Okay, and let's sort of take another aspect then of the difficulties faced by the oceans. And plastic pollution is quite often discussed. Now, it seems to me the oceans are so vast. It seems extraordinary there'd be enough plastic out there to make a significant difference. But but there is, isn't there? Yes,
0: I mean, the the quantity of plastic that we're we're producing is, is absolutely vast, And some of it is recycled or, you know, stored away or buried on land, but lots of it finds its way into the rivers, gets washed into the sea. Because of the way that ocean currents work, it it collects in various places. So we get the kind of Great Pacific garbage patch, which is pretty vast. And it doesn't exactly look like a garbage patch and it's not exactly piled high, but there are concentrations there of plastics and, and microplastics that are really worrying in the sense that they get eaten by, absorbed by organisms and pass away down the food chain. So the, the chief problem with plastic pollution in terms of marine animals like fish and birds is simply that they kind of inadvertently eat them or they eat them um, believing that they are something, you know, nutritious. And because they can't be digested, they just remain in their stomachs or in their guts. They are full and they can't eat anymore. So eventually, you know, seabirds and, and fish can, can starve to death.
1: The result of uh, the plastic and other aspects of environmental degradation are what you call marine dead zones. Can you talk us through them?
0: Yeah, so dead zones are chiefly associated with agriculture. So dead zones happen around the coast of places where intensive agriculture happens. So the problem is really nitrogen fertiliser. So when Nitrogen is, is used on farmland, which has kind of produced incredible benefits in terms of the, the fertility of the soil. Often it leaches its way again into the rivers, down to the oceans. And what it does there is it spurs the growth of lots and lots of algae. And the algae lives, but eventually dies. And when it dies, it sucks the oxygen out of the water. So dead zones are essentially parts of the ocean that have very low oxygen. So in those areas, we tend to find kind of shellfish, small fish, and then the, the bigger creatures that that predate them. So, you know, porpoises, dolphins eventually dying. So dead zones are somewhat kind of devoid of life. So the, the Baltic Sea is one of the most famous examples, but also places off the coast of the US.
1: Then you move on to uh, the people using the ocean and indeed the animals. Who exist in the ocean. So let's deal with the people first. I, I guess it's, is it always been the case that mariners, you know, have pretty rough working conditions, tend to be underpaid, you know, marginal employment? Is that right or is it worse now than it used to be?
0: The, the picture is slightly complicated. You're, you're absolutely right that um, mariners, seafarers have always complained about the conditions. They've always, argued that being out there on the open sea has exposed them to, to mistreatment, to, you know, a lack of food, a lack of pay. On the other hand, working in the, the ocean economy, becoming a seafarer has also for many oppressed people been a kind of escape. So you might actually want to go out to sea as a way of escaping poverty or, you know, religious
1: persecution or something along those lines. So tell us a bit more about the situation now faced by people working on the sea.
0: Yeah. So I think one of the starting points here is to recognise that if you're out there as a seafarer in the ocean economy, fishing, for example, you inhabit this really distinctive legal position. We have this doctrine of flag state jurisdiction, which says essentially that, you know, each boat, boat out there on the open ocean is a little kind of slice of one country's territory. So it would be sailing under the flag of one country or another. And people who own boats can choose which flag their vessels sail under. So what we see really is the emergence of what often get called flag of convenience countries, which are countries which are happy to hire out their flag, but don't really um, devote much effort to making sure that workers are protected or that environmental standards are protected. So in some places in the world, especially the Gulf of Thailand seems to be the kind of epicenter of abuse, we see some really terrible working conditions. So, you know, not just being overworked and deprived of pay, but deprived of medical care, sometimes being beaten and even killed and thrown overboard because these workers are geographically so far from help, but they're also sailing under the flag of a country which doesn't have much interest in protecting their rights.
1: Right. And some of the captains of these ships just sound terrible.
0: Out of sight, out of mind, right? Um, the, the the abuses that are possible out there, you know, 50 or 100 miles or 200 miles from any coast line are, are, are dreadful. Um, there's a kind of impunity that um, opens up the possibility of abuse for, for unscrupulous work, uh, employers.
1: And tell us about fish rights, if that's what I should call them, because animal rights have you yeah, become a much bigger thing over the last 20, 30 years. People talking about them, trying to enforce them. I don't know why, but, they, you know, the fish don't seem to get quite as much attention, except perhaps the whale, is it? So, so tell us what the sort of landscape of that is.
0: Yeah, no, that's a great question. So, in the law of the sea, so the, the kind of grand document of the law of the sea is the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea from 1982. I mean, you, it's a very long document. It discusses all kinds of issues. But one thing it never discusses is the idea that the creatures that actually live in the sea might have rights. So by and large, fish, for example, are, are treated as resources to be kind of argued over and haggled over within international law. The Whales, as you kind of rightly mentioned, are a kind of partial exception to that although what happens with whales historically is kind of interesting so we get we get the emergence of you know whaling treaties which initially are not really intended to protect whales in their own right at all they're intended to protect whaling right because it it becomes obvious that there is so much whaling that the whales are going to disappear and that the industry is going to be is going to kind of bottom out so initially kind of international agreements on whaling are about making sure that the whales last so as a resource but over time we get um we, we get in the kind of emerging norm that whales are just not the kind of creature that we ought to be killing for you know oil or, or blubber so that's the kind of en- the entry point i guess if for many people for a discussion about the rights of of the creatures that live in the ocean but i think ideally it would go much further right each you know, distinctive life form in the the ocean might intelligibly have its own kind of rights, depending on what vulnerabilities it has, depending on how we kind of impact on on those creatures.
1: Is there anyone writing out there that there is a distinction between fish rights and animal rights?
0: There are philosophers who think there are differences. Uh, So for example, there's a well-known American philosopher called Martha Nussbaum who thinks that we shouldn't hunt on land because that kind of treats land animals kind of as a means to an end not as an end in itself Um, but she thinks that fishing at least if it can be done relatively kind of painlessly with a high welfare standard is not problematic so she thinks there's some kind of distinction between morally between fish and other animals I'm not so sure I think the kind of standard arguments for why animals have rights are probably going to apply to fish as well I think fish are kind of Capable of and vulnerable in ways that we don't um, necessarily recognize,
1: and presumably one of the differences, which is something you, you talk about anyway, is whether animals are farmed or not. I mean that 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 can be, you know, relevant morally, and you 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 well let's just say that you're making the point in the book that there's much more aquaculture than there used to be, right?
0: Yeah, we're we're right now on the cusp of. Aquaculture replacing wild fishing as a as a source of fish for the global economy as a source of protein for our diets, so we are i think in in the decades to come, we will probably look back and think it's kind of odd in some ways that we used to you know roam out on the open ocean scooping up fish rather than farming them. Aquaculture is growing very rapidly, whereas populations of wild fish as as we know are you know declining in many ways.
1: Now, presumably that i mean yeah there's nothing wrong with that right i mean agriculture has worked very well for humans and there you know there's been a a very long history of relationship between humans and farmed animals so should should we view aquaculture negatively i mean if you take
0: a, a strong animal rights position um i guess there's not that much difference between you know fishing wild fish and agriculture you are you are probably infringing the, the rights of the fish involved you're kind of killing them unnecessarily, subjecting them to, I mean, the case of aquaculture, that the main worries are about crowding and, and disease and so on. Add on to that, there are some distinctive environmental worries about aquaculture. So, you know, locks in Scotland, where, where salmon are farmed, environmental activists report back that, you know, if you look underneath the, the pens that these salmon are kept in, there isn't much life, because we get um, you know chemicals put into the water we get lots of kind of fish faeces that descends down and um, we get this uh, quite barren um, stretch of of seabed underneath so, so there are environmental worries about fish farming and there are of course animal rights animal welfare
1: worries too in most of those things as in farming right as in farming on land could be fixed by better regulation i mean you know no doubt some of the farming practices of 100 years ago are considered totally unacceptable now and you know with the, the fishing you've made the point already it's a bit out of out of sight so it may take longer for proper regulation to come in i guess
0: yes you're right so um we could farm fish differently one you know one peculiarity of fish farming is that the fish that consumers prefer to eat are carnivorous fish, right? So um, salmon and, and prawns and so on. They essentially eat other fish. And that has kind of major environmental consequences because we get these we we get these boats, you know, sailing around places like the Gulf of Thailand scooping up pretty much everything that moves and, and grinding them up to make fish meal to feed these these fish, which doesn't look like a great model right, in lots of ways environmentally. But there are alternatives. I mean, you know, farming um, mussels and oysters looks really different from the point of view both of welfare and impact on the environment. So one of the big um, differences would be that you don't need to feed oysters or mussels at all. Right? You, you simply kind of, in the case of mussels, you kind of You might lower a kind of rope or a framework into the ocean, come back a year later and it'll be covered in mussels and you simply pick them off and transport them away. So there's a kind of there's an environmental footprint in the the fuel and and so on. But the environmental footprint is much, much
1: lower than in the case of, let's say, salmon farming. Yeah. Uh, Well, just in that context, let me ask you about, I mean, funny enough, I live by the sea and there's someone in the village I live in who is trying to set up a project to, to farm seaweed Mm. Uh, which um, sounds, you know, interesting and and quite he, he says not not as difficult as you'd think. Uh, is 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 that happening? Is that something you're aware of? Yes, it is,
0: and um, it's 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 been a big thing in Asia for a long time, as you might expect. But it's emerging in Europe and North America. Seaweed can actually be used in all kinds of ways. You know, we can eat seaweed. You can, you can give seaweed as a a dietary supplement to. Cattle, for example, and, and scientists say that cattle that are fed seaweed supplements uh, emit, if you like, uh, less methane, which is, which is great for the climate. So seaweed is a very kind of versatile product, but it also doesn't really seem to have negative environmental impact. So seaweed farming is, again, a relatively straightforward operation. So you don't need to use fertilizers. You don't need to use pesticides. You simply let the seaweed grow. And while the seaweed grows, it kind of acts as a nursery for lots of marine life. So you might find, you know, the seahorses returning, you might find lots of crustaceans returning. So it looks like a win-win, really, in an environmental way. So so seaweed um, farming may well be a kind of an interesting and and positive part of the future, I think.
1: And where where does tidal energy come into all of this? Because it does seem, you know, a, a solution to the energy crisis in some some ways in that it, it's obviously very green and it uh, is predictable, unlike wind power. Uh, but I'm seeing that there are uh, environmental objections to having turbines on the floor. I mean, it would seem to me there are so, such a tiny amount of the floor space would be used by these turbines that it'd be surprising if they made a big impact. But h- how do you see that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a difficult and, and complicated question. You You're absolutely right that tidal power has this big advantage, which it is, which is that it's really, really predictable, right? So unlike wind and solar, um, we can pretty much count on the tides. There are concerns, I mean, maybe there are especially concerns about these kind of big tidal barrages. So, you know, if you kind of put a, a barrage of, of uh, installations across the whole of the, the, the seven, for example, then this might have a big impact on on ecosystems, it might prevent... Fish kind of spawning in the places they're used to spawning. It might prevent um, marine mammals from from reaching where they want to get to. On the smaller scale, um, maybe those those worries are, are less um, serious. So, yeah, I mean, I think I think the jury's out. I think undoubtedly tidal power looks like it's going to be part of the energy mix we need. We, you know, we can We're in a position where beggars can't be choosers, really. Um, but how big a part of the future? sure it's going to be the energy mix in the future I'm not I'm not sure yeah,
1: I mean, just just one thought about these barrages. I mean, again, just in the area I'm in, the, the, the Victorians put up barrages, which have created parts of the uh, seascape that are now considered very special environmentally. You know, <laughs> that they, they've had a beneficial, apparently beneficial effect yeah. on the environment, no doubt. know, yeah, massive interventions in a way, building these huge, uh, these huge constructions, that, you know, to take roads across the sea and to protect harbors and so on. I mean, do you think sometimes? That these interventions are not necessarily all negative.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you make an important point, which is that we can't imagine that there is some kind of very neat and everlasting distinction between land and sea. Right, that the barrier between land and sea changes, and often it changes as a result of you know human ingenuity. So, you know, countries like the Netherlands or, or Singapore. Have grown as a result of the the reclamation of the sea. But by the same token, we can also restore. We can restore wetlands, we can can give land back to the sea. So part of the discussion about climate change is undoubtedly, I mean, this is a big public debate in the Netherlands, it's undoubtedly about which bits of the land do we choose to give up, right, in order to protect what we want to protect. So there's certainly not some kind of hard and fast line on a map in the way that an atlas might make you think. There is a kind of, there is a big collective decision or set of decisions in many countries that need to be made about exactly what our coastlines are going to look
1: like in the future. Let's move on now to, you know, solutions to some of these problems and looking ahead as to what what might be done. I mean, one of the things you say, I'm I'm rather surprised it still happens, is that, you know, there should be a ban on cyanide and dynamite when fishing. Where does that happen?
0: This happens in... uh, the Caribbean in particular, but also off, off the coast of Africa, it's essentially a very cheap and not particularly technologically advanced way of, of gathering lots and lots of fish, right? So you, you throw the dynamite into the into the water and it explodes and the, the shortly afterwards the fish kind of float belly up and you you, you gather them all and, and you sell them. It's destructive and often, depressingly, it happens where the fish are quite close to the surface in places like coral reefs. So in those places it's hugely destructive.
1: Yeah. And and then you talk about harmful fishing subsidies. Us, tell us us what the you know where where that's happening and what the impact is.
0: Yeah, so it might be interesting there to talk about the high seas. So in international law, there's this distinction between, you know, each each country's bit of marine territory, its exclusive economic zone, and then the high seas. The border there is two hundred nautical miles out to sea stops being your bit of marine territory and becomes the high seas. Now, the thing about high seas fishing is that, according to economists, it's a completely irrational practice um, because it costs you as much or more to fuel your fishing boat to get as far as the high seas as you are likely to to catch. Right? Um, so it's a kind of um, very strange practice, in fact, that high seas fishing exists at all, but it does exist because several countries subsidise their high seas fleets because the you know the domestic fishing lobby is powerful in those countries or because they've kind of overfished their own bits of marine territory and they need to roam further afield to get access to fish somewhere else. So the high seas, we, we get this strange kind of economically irrational phenomenon of these five or six countries just scooping up lots and lots of fish, carrying them back and Damaging, you know, marine ecosystems in the process to no real kind of economic end.
1: Well, uh, but there is an end nutritionally, right? Because that 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 fish is feeding people. So, any solution to that would have to include a, a plan to replace that nourishment.
0: Yes, yes, it would. Um, I mean, a thing I th- I would say in response to that is that the poorer people of the world who are, you know, understandably dependent on fish for for their diets are not really fishing on the high seas right they, they can't afford to get there they're, they're engaged in what we call kind of artisanal fishing which is fishing within about kind of 10 to 12 miles of the coast which is roughly where you can you know um, row your way out to and back within a day right before night falls high seas fishing is is big business by and large um, we get these big kind of fishing outfits which gain these these fuel subsidies from their governments, which allows them to go on um, fishing on the high seas. I don't think that the the impact on the diets of poor people would be would be very serious if we if we ended high fish high seas fishing tomorrow. I mean at least some fisheries economists think that the, the nutritional impact would be would be fairly modest. Actually it might be positive, right? Because one idea about the high seas is that if we simply close the high seas to fishing, it would just act as this kind of great spawning ground or breeding ground and we would see more fish in states marine territories
1: appearing I mean you'll be familiar with those stories of um nets that drag the surface of the ocean the floor of the ocean and just scoop up everything it sounds absolutely bonkers that it's that it's allowed is that is that what the high seas fishing is Is are they the ones that use those nets
0: yeah, they, they do in some cases. Um, so there are these things called sea mounts in the high seas, which are a bit like kind of mountains that don't quite make it to the surface. So they're kind of underwater mountains. And they are, you know, because the high seas in in some ways is a bit of a, a desert biologically. Um, what fish life there is tends to congregate around, you know, physical features like, you know, it might be plastic garbage patches or it might be sea mounts. These sea mounts get dredged pretty regularly. It takes fish a long time to recover from that. Right? So um, in some ways, you know, there's this kind of interesting analogy. In some ways, you know, these these trawling operations on the high seas look a bit more like mining than they do kind of farming in the sense that they they destroy the ecosystem on these seamounts. It isn't going to return possibly for decades rather than farming where, you, you know, you think you can kind of sustainably do this year on year.
1: Well, yes, it's interesting you say that, though, because one of the striking claims in your book is that marine ecosystems recover faster than terrestrial ones. And I was, I was very struck by that. And well, first of all, uh, c- can you give an example of that?
0: So there is this really interesting historical example, which, of course, we wouldn't want to repeat, but it's kind of what economists call a natural experiment. And, and the example is the Second World War, where, you know, German U-boats were, were buzzing around the, the North Atlantic, for example, fishermen were not able to go out to sea and then in 1945 when they went out to sea once more after a break of you know five or six years they were stunned by the number of fish that were out there in the sea so it looks as though if we just give them the chance fish populations are incredibly resilient they will bounce back we've been we've been testing that hypothesis to the limits though because of course the chance to bounce back is exactly what we haven't been
1: giving fish populations. But what, isn't, isn't that what uh, happened, actually, in the case of cod in the Atlantic, that there was a, a moratorium on it and it worked. Yeah, they did bounce back. Yes. Yeah.
0: I mean, this, this is this is the, uh, the flip side of the story. Um, if we just give them the chance, fish populations. So marine biologists talk about the importance of these. Um, so, so unlike kind of humans or, or land based animals, the older a fish gets, the bigger it gets, the more fertile it gets. So it's especially important when we establish things like marine protected areas that we give them a few years to prove their worth, because eventually we'll get these these big, super fertile fish whose whose kind of eggs grow, whose whose who's young will start radiating out into the, the surrounding seas relatively quickly.
1: When you when you look ahead, you, you've talked about a, a world ocean authority. What are the obstacles to? to doing some of the things you're talking about, you know, to not using dynamite, not using trawlers that, that, that sort of wreck the, the ocean floor, you yeah, know, creating systems that allow stocks to recover. What, what, why, why is all that so difficult?
0: So one thing I would say is that in the book, I try to do two different, but I think complementary things. When it comes to the high seas, I, I go straight for the big picture and say, you know, what would an ideal solution look like? I spin this yarn about a World Ocean Authority that in a sense would be an environmental guardian for the whole of the high seas. So, you know, perhaps it would not allow any fishing on the high seas. Perhaps it would outlaw deep sea mining, probably because of its likely environmental impact. And I understand that this is not likely to happen anytime soon. So recently we had a high seas treaty that was much, much less ambitious than that. But then the flip side of that is, closer to home, this is the second part of the story, where each state has its own bit of marine territory, I, I give a number of examples of things that individual states could do, and in some cases have done, to nurture marine ecosystems back to health. So we do have some good news story that wouldn't require a huge amount of kind of institutional innovation.
1: Okay, and so when you look ahead, are I, I, you optimistic that this will get traction as an issue? Because I can could, I could see lots of reasons why it wouldn't. I mean, many of which you've stated, you know, it all happens a long way away. Uh, there are many other more pressing problems, perhaps, you know, or more immediate problems. Uh, do, are, are you optimistic?
0: I am unguardedly optimistic. Um, and the reason for that is that I think interest in the ocean is, is growing rapidly. So certainly whenever I go and talk to people about the ocean, you know, I don't, I don't have to persuade people how interesting and important this is. There is a, a great kind of untapped audience out there, and I say untapped because I think it is untapped by our by our politicians who don't particularly get around to campaigning on ocean facing issues. With a few exceptions, often what happens is that kind of ordinary citizens find themselves joining up these these kind of great public spirited and noble environmental. Um, activities like, you know, clearing up plastic from beaches and campaigning about sewage, you know, organisations like Surfers Against Sewage. But they don't really know what comes next. And I think we're, we're kind of missing uh, a democratic politics of the ocean in many ways. I well, yes,
1: but we, no, no one's elected to represent the oceans, are they?
0: No, absolutely. Absolutely. and And governments don't tend to have ministers for the ocean. They often have ministers for, for fishing, which is not quite the same thing. It would be wonderful if politicians did campaign on ocean-facing issues, but I think they're not going to do that until enough voters ask them why they are not doing that, right? Why right? until they get enough kind of letters from concerned citizens, or it might be NGOs, to say, well, look, what is your vision for the ocean by 2050 or by the end of the century? What kind of ocean economy do you want to see what kind of ocean environment do you want to see?
1: And as as you studied this, writing this book, what what surprised you most of all? What did you discover that you thought, gosh?
0: One of the things that surprised me most was the was the incredible vulnerability of of workers in the the ocean economy. So, the chapter I had on um, people who work in fishing on the high seas and you know the Gulf of Thailand was was horrifying. I wasn't entirely surprised that abuses happened, but the kind of sheer vulnerability and the sheer scale of the abuses is is pretty shocking. Aside from that, I think I've just come to learn more and more about the kind of many ways in which we depend on the ocean, environmentally, socially, economically, which I think were not were not quite obvious to me. So in that sense, it was definitely a kind
1: of voyage of discovery. And it has been for us too. So uh, Professor Chris Armstrong, thanks very much for taking us on it. And uh, it's a very, yeah, you know, it's a good topic, which, as you say, hasn't received an awful lot of attention. So thank you very much indeed.
0: Thank you.